to our first episode. Um, if you're listening or if you stumbled upon your way here, my name is Cassidy and my lovely co-host. I'm Abby. Beautiful. And we're here. <laughs> we're here to tell you why all your favorite musicals are trash. Wahoo! Our vision with this was really just watching old favorites and deciding if they can still live in today's world. Which lets Abby introduce the format we're going to do. All right, all right, all right. So we're going to watch a show every week. Uh, we'll keep you updated which ones that we're looking into, which ones that we're watching. Maybe you could watch along with us. I don't know. It'd be quirky. It'd be different. And then Cassidy and I are going to get together and we're going to duke it out on whether or not we think that show should fly, die, or retry. Fly meaning it's perfectly good to go. Don't have a note for it. I loved everything. You guys did wonderful. Die is pretty self-explanatory. It's got to go. Uh, retry. And we'll kind of explain why we think we should retry it week to week. But, you know. This whole podcast started with me having a heated convo about Golden Age musicals with Abby and what I think should die. So it's going to get a little a little tough in here. Um. But in a more serious tone, with everything going on in the world right now and with the just with the theater artist movement going on right now, in addition to trying to get aid, but trying to reform the industry and trying to make theater an anti-racist environment, tool, space, art, all of the above. Part of that comes with reforming the space and the industry and the people who work there, but also the canon that we have grown up with, that we have come to enjoy, that gets reproduced in high schools and senior centers and Broadway and off-Broadway, and the impact that that has today. So reforming the industry means reforming the canon. Long story short. And this week, we watched the 2015 revival of The King and I. Thank you, my free trial with Broadway HD. Those seven days have been lovely. So, little history on the 2015 revival of The King and I, um, and The King and I in general. The King and I was based on Margaret Landon's Anna and the King of Siam, which was written in 1944, but that was based on memoirs from Anna Leonowens and King Monkut of Siam, which was the early 1960s. The King and I is the fourth longest running show on Broadway, and the 2015 revival won for Best Revival. In 1950 and in 1996, it won Best Revival. It won Best Musical when it came out, which is 1952, which I'm going to bring up a lot when we contextualize this musical. 1952. Um, and this was Rodgers and Hammerstein's fifth musical together and Kelly O'Hara's first Tony win. Oh, that that might be my first bullshit right there. <laughs> Speaking of this and, and getting into this realm, sometimes we're going to make mistakes. Sometimes we're going to lie, not meaningfully, but there's going to be some some bluffing. And because of that, a little homage to summer camp. Um, when you play the card game BS, when you lie, you say peanut butter. Um, so you can go to our website and peanut butter us and let us know that we've made a mistake. Or just like say hi. Or your stories. If you've auditioned for these shows or if you've had experiences with them. Please let us know. We want to hear from you. We want to create community with this work because we want to hear everyone's opinions about reforming this work. So launching back into The King and I. Launching back into The King and I. Um, Cassidy, do you think The King and I should fly, die or retry? Ah. <sighs> OK, I want to give my opinion now, but I would really like to give my opinion again after we talk because I don't want to be judged. Um, 
Right now, I would like a retry because I do appreciate the classic elements of this. I do appreciate the bops. I love how grand her costumes are. I really fall into the trap of it's pretty with this one, but it's also white savior. And that's not pretty. So we're going to get into it. But right now, my thesis is retry. And I'll get into some more grand thesis statements as we go. What's your thoughts, Abby? (sighs) My thesis... Uh, can we, can we, can we let them in on a little secret that this is our second go at episode one? I know, I know, I know. I was going to let them in on the secret that we plan and talk in advance, but I'll let them in now. We've tried this before, folks. Yeah, we've tried this, this specific episode once. And last time I was really, really gung ho. I like, I figured out a way that I would have been comfortable with it retrying. Oh no, you're going to kill it. And I think that it (gasps) needs to die for a certain amount of time. I... It's that pod. There is a beautiful podcast, a wonderful, amazing podcast that CTG did where they were recording a conversation. Oh, about the Janine Tesori soft power, soft power. Um, And before they created soft power, because they were like, "Ooh, can't talk about soft power in the podcast. They talked about Asian-American representation in the canon and Asian-American representation in like L.A. also and just some of the dynamics around casting and um, Abby, where might they be able to find this interviewer podcast? They can find it linked probably on our website. Woo woo. Plug for the website. That's all right. Continue, Abby. Website, 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 Uh, website, website, website. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And they just talked a lot about um, how what they want to see for the future of the industry for them Mm. um, in a way that affects them personally in a way that doesn't affect me because I am a middle-class white girl. Yeah. Oh, we didn't, Uh, we didn't address that at the top of the pod. Classic, classic mistake. We are cis white women. (laughs) Like we just want to own that. We're going to bring on guests. We're going (laughs) to, we're going to add some color to this podcast because we understand that that's important and we are not the speak all for everyone. Also real quick before we jump in, uh, just a quick disclaimer, we do discuss rape very, very briefly in this episode. Yeah. So, all right, Broadway BBs, we're going to we're going to launch in the way my mind works, which is the song order. But we're going to skip around a little bit as well. Skip around, skip, skip, skip up and skip up and skip, and skip down. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> jumping to I Whistle a Happy Tune, which I don't know if this is y'all's grandparents, but like this is something like my grandparents would sing around the house. Like it's one of those old 1950s musical theater standards that even non-theater people just kind of knew at the time. Like we don't we don't play musical theater hits on pop radio the way we used to, but we used to. And the transfer of that and the crossover, that was very big. So we start with Whistle a Happy Tune and I it's just sweet. It's old. It's sweet. You may be as brave as you think you are, um, but immediately she lands in Siam, lands, arrives. What do you say when it's a ship instead of lands? Uh, Docks, docks in Siam. And (laughs) immediately there's beggars at her feet, like from the get go. And they kind of, what what was your rational, not rationalization, but Abby kind of called me on that when I pulled it out the first time. I mean, they do say later in the show because these these beggars, like at least in this stage version, the one on Broadway HD, these beggars like 
kind of overwhelm Anna, uh, not aggressively, but just like they're picking and touching at her. And later in the show, when Aunt, when all of the wives of the king have to, wives is an interesting word for it, uh, have to dress more westernized, they, they reveal <laughs> that they were touching at Anna's skirt because they thought- children. Her body was shaped the way that 1800s hoop skirt was. Yeah. So pretty early on, we get the like, we need something from you vibe. One of my big notes that I wrote was, is the bowing at all accurate or is it cheap blocking? Because it's really easy to just say, oh, bow in this moment. The limited research that I could find on this was that the block? Okay. Dramaturgy dump, Abby. Dramaturgy dump, but I'm not as confident in this one as I'm going to be in about It's it. not a full dump. I would say it's like a dramaturgy little dabble. A little dabble. A little dabble in some dramaturgy. For our newbie bees, uh, dramaturgy is the historical research that goes into theatrical productions. And it's a big old fancy word for research. Um, and it's my favorite pastime, truly. Yeah, it's great. Is that... In Thai culture, the bow would never, it's like the hands go at the heart and you bow at the waist. So very similar to how they bow at the end of the show. We're going to talk about that too. So I don't know if that cultural, because what I found was about Thai culture, not Siamese culture. So mm. I don't know. If the we- last time we talked, I made the correlation that Siam is Siamese, folks. Um, I'm a college graduate. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> so I don't know if the bow is right, but. Okay. It becomes relevant. They, they tie it in as a, we'll talk, we'll talk. The, the bowing like toads reference needs to die. We'll get there. It does need to die. Jumping to My Lord, My Master by Top Tim. I think she killed it. <laughs> I loved it. I was there with her. Dramaturgy Dump, Top Tim in real dump. life, uh, was burned at the stake. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> I thought she was, I thought she lived truthfully in imaginary circumstances. And that's really hard to hear and does influence my opinion at the end. So we're going to get to that thesis. My next note was, does any other, does any other color, does blackness have a space in the show? And I think decidedly no, which is a little problematic as well. I mean, not problematic, but just understanding that if you're doing this show, like in your summer season, A, please don't do it if you just have a bunch of white folk. Um, But B, I don't know what I want to say here because like it is incorporating like a minority and voices of color if you're casting it correctly. I But go ahead, Miss Abby. The, sh- the book is written portraying this mm. culture incorrectly. And it mm. perpetuates an idea of this culture. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that has a lot. That has that has a lot of elements of like bad of uh, Asian stereotypes within the musical theater canon as like the comedic role. Yeah, we were speaking about that too, like drowsy chaperone and thoroughly modern Millie. And there's one more. Oh, it's Bye Bye Birdie. I think. Don't quote me. Is it Bye Bye Birdie? 
peanut butter me if I'm wrong, but all of them have comedic songs where kind of the butt of the joke is that it's an Asian person. And I feel like this is a really important time to add that as of 2017, Broadway was 7.3% Asian in terms of casts. So 66.8% Caucasian cast on Broadway as of 2016. Um, And these stats are provided to us by the Asian American Actors Union. Shout out. And we're going to mention them again soon. Love them. But I'll just say that, like, I, I'm not sure that there's a space for blackness in this show. Um, And I just. Representation in this show is hard because the book doesn't support it. (laughs) That's a great time for my favorite game called. How Asian was the original cast? Take a guess, Abby. Original cast. It was on Broadway. Mind you, 1952. Are we talking like X out of X? Or are we talking percentage? <sighs> Whatever your heart desires, honestly. However you feel you should deliver me that number. I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with 11%. That's cool. The answer is zero. <laughs> okay quirky different not like other girls got it (laughs) not like other girls not culture not um color consciously cast no not even a little bit my next note on a on a lighter book on a lighter book on a lighter note the book um kelly o'hara shines man she deserved the tony long before this but she's clear and she's crisp i think there were brilliant performers in this show i don't know that the book allowed them to live to their full potential clearly um gonna again remind us 1952 but uh, that's my that's my apologist trait i like to really remind people how old things are to like excuse bad behavior but like the age doesn't change that it's bad behavior at all um so (laughs) regardless it's bad bad behavior crosses generations um i wrote that a woman has written a book was a cheap laugh and i don't need it anymore maybe in 1952 that really flew but not now Yeah, I think that's another reason that I ended up being on the die side of this musical, at least for now, at least until we can come back and look at it again as a society in which we laugh at how preposterous our portrayal and treatment of other people was. Interesting. Okay, so it's like a it's like a Western people funny, but of the whole musical. Yeah, yeah, I just like. We should be, this musical should be making fun of the preposterous ways that. Yeah, yeah. We really amp up the misunderstanding on the Western side could be a potential retry. I get you. It could be, but I don't think, but at the same time, I don't think that we should be spending artistic labor and time and resources and brain power rethinking how to make the king and i good right now yeah instead of just promoting work by like asian writers yep (laughs) except for maybe just creating new things to the canon that share the story we want to share as artists more articulately articulately I'm going to go for it. I'm going to say it. Peanut butter me if that's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Peanut butter me for articulately. Um, So I'm going to shit on my hometown theater, which is unfortunate. Um, Not even my hometown. Like, it's not mine, but it was the Broadway Across America Theater in Dallas. So Dallas Summer Musicals put out a call for The King and I, and they just asked for children. Not Mm -hmm. Asian children. And I went, folks. 
I went with two friends. I was about 14. And I'm going to say, like, I thought they were casting Anna's children as well. I didn't know the show. I don't want to apologize for myself. Like, I, you know, I shouldn't have gone. But I, I wasn't thinking, I wasn't going into it thinking, like, I'm going to pose as an Asian child. Oh, I was good. thinking, like, oh, I will be, you know, I'll be one of Anna's kids because she already has a son. But we got there and no, there were maybe two Asian kids and a bunch of other little girls. And one of the girls was put in a little like party city kimono. No. And her hair was tied back with a bun and chopsticks. No. Which was appalling. And then eventually the Asian Actors Union was called on the show because there was a white king and they were kind of doing light yellow face. And it just really goes to show like this show gave people the impression of like what Asian people were like. And then that was spit back at them. Like the parent had to think, oh, I'll throw her in a kimono. It'll get her cast and let me put her hair up. And that impression is important. The way that 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 lasting effect is created by things like the show, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think that's another part of the responsibility of the storyteller is to pay attention to what you're teaching to the masses and pay attention to how you're informing culture. And unfortunately, I think that's what the King and I's lesson is right now. Um, which is another reason I think it needs to die. Sadly. <laughs> mm. But, um, where are we in the show? What are we doing next? I am going to go to the fact that I think a puzzlement was a trash song for the king to first sing. I think they immediately establish him as like an aggressive figure, which they want to do. Um, like clearly that's their goal. But this is also the song that I noticed his accent is the strongest. And I'd like to have a conversation about where these accents came from. Was there a dialect coach involved in the 2015 revival? Because I don't see one anywhere on the production list. Yeah, I uh, last time we tried this little quick little episode, I thought that the a puzzlement could have been a song that really showed um, how difficult it is to like rule a nation and how like this song could be a very genuine and earnest struggle that the king is uh, articulating. But I agree. Mm-hmm. I think that it. I think it's just like infantilizing the king, making him seem like an angry baby. Um, Yeah. And I listened to it again today in the car and like, he's so muffled. You really have to strain to hear some of his sentences. And like, that was intentional, man. All of these people know how to enunciate. Yeah. Especially, especially like this cast. Like this was a, this was a talented cast that they have. Oh, a what? And a, a seasoned cast. Like, I don't know if anyone made their Broadway debut in this show. Oh, Ken did. But, Ken's Broadway debut? It was his first musical theater period. Wow. I I thought Ken was a great king. I really enjoyed him. I think he tried to do the best with a book that make, tries to make fun of him the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think a puzzlement immediately introduces the king as this like kind of dumb, confusing figure. And I think that just does a disservice to the relationship because if you just showed him as different... I'm still interested in different. I, you know, they don't need to be savage for yeah. me to be interested, but it felt very, let's paint him as if he's a savage and he's a king. He's clearly not. He, and he's his histo- dramaturgy dump. He 
is a king that's known for being really smart. He yeah. he was accredited with some of the westernization of Siam, Siamese oh, wow. culture. And he really did, like, he introduced maps. And um, it's interesting to note that in his initial letter, though, to Anna, their first correspondences, he asked her to be an English and a science teacher but not teach Christianity because they are a Buddhist culture and have no interest in her Christianity, which the show... The show sure amps that up. Let's talk about what, what's the Bible story they refer to in the show? Oh, the, the creation of the world. Thank you. <laughs> you know, what's that Bible thing? The, the creationism? Because uh, <laughs> they make fun of the first six days. Yeah, and it's it's interesting banter, but again, kind of cheap. They could banter about a lot of things, and there's different ways to talk about the fact that like their religions are very different. Yeah, there's way more respectful ways, ways that don't um ways that don't automatically assume that Christianity is the superior uh form of religion, you know? Because it's not. <sighs> I wrote Getting to Know You, a cultural exchange bop. But also diving into the lyrics, um, getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. Like, <laughs> that's the whole point of the show. We're going to westernize you. Like, that's that's the bit, folks. Putting it my way, but nicely. Here's a really pretty show with some nice tunes about how westernization in America is the best. Or not America. Where's she from? She's She was actually, okay, dramaturgy dump. She was born... She is a Welsh citizen. Okay, yeah, I remember that. She said she was in the musical. She says she was born in um, Wales, but she was actually born in... Ooh, not there. She was born in one of the foreign colonies. I read a lot about how they say, like, she made up her own story of sorts. And then just kind of jumped with that identity. Yeah, there's a lot of question about um, if she dramatized her own initial letters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Her whole identity is a little foggy in real life. Yeah, so it's, there's a lot of question because she in her letters makes it sound like she's like some assistance to the king. And I'm also like, do you just think that you're helping because you're Western and you're like my way or the highway? yeah. So I wrote a cultural exchange bot, but like, again, imposing. Absolutely. I love We Kiss in a Shadow. We Kiss in a Shadow taps into my sweet little heart. And it's kind of, Abby, Abby doesn't agree, but um, I, I just think it's nice. And I think it's sweet. And yeah, when you take the song in context, she's kind of running away from rape. Um, So... I, again, it's pretty, but it was so pretty. I mean, it is beautiful, but I think sometimes in this show specifically, the beauty and grandeur of the show distracts from the very human realities of the show. And I think, yeah, I think, as you said, the show was written in 1952. And in 1952, when people went to the theater, they wanted big, they wanted grand, they wanted lights, they wanted they wanted 42nd Street, they wanted 50 people yeah, on stage number. tap dancing all at once. And so the king and I had to 
had to dramatize a concubine. That's the thing. And Abby pointed that out to me when we talked. Like, this whole show lies on the premise of, like, let's just not call it rape. Yeah. I wrote that the argument over a house feels like an empty conflict. Yet again, they needed to find really, like... Like, in religion, at least they're arguing about something that's pretty central to their identity. The argument over her having her own house, which lies throughout the show, like, it's either her trying to establish, like, like I'm not one of your women. Um, but I think there were a lot of developmental things that they could have thought about that would have progressed the story along instead of a house. Yeah, and it was really interesting reading about Thai culture again. Again, literally just reading I did, I could be so incredibly wrong. But one thing I read about Thai culture was that it's all about that one of the central ideas is like peace. And the article I was reading was specifically critiquing uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in Thailand because the, the man was saying that like a large part of the Thai culture and the identity is peace. And sometimes that peace has blinded justice mm. Or like overshadowed justice a little mm. bit. It was really, it was really an really interesting opinion piece that I read. Yeah, that ties a lot back into what we talked about. But I'm just like, if that's true, wouldn't the king be more interested in peace? And wouldn't he just give her the house if she's been fighting with him? Why is he not just giving her that? I they they to further represent the fact that they didn't actually care about humanizing the character of the king, and they only cared about making fun of him. They never gave him a real reason for not giving her the house. Yeah, if the house is Other than there. he's like howdy and angry and mad and like. But it's also another typical example of like the the invisible emotional labor that women have to do. Like it's on her to soften the king. And it's her guidance that softens the king and makes him understand and makes him fair. Quote unquote in the realm of this musical. Yeah, for a show that, like, preaches women's rights, she really had to do a lot of hedging. Yeah, yeah, and I I feel like that's necessary. Uh, one of my notes was, does this pass the Bechdel test? And it doesn't. No. Not that the Bechdel test is perfect, but... Yeah, not perfect, but there's no female plots that don't revolve around a man in the show, and that was a double negative sentence, but you can figure it out. And the lead romance, the implied romance that is so praised across reviews of this show between Anna and the King, I personally, hot, spicy, little, spicy, wicey little take. Mm. I hate it. I hate it so much. (laughs) Yeah, Abby had a take where she thinks there can't be romance between the King and Anna. I don't think, I think if you want to retry it, if you don't want to just let it die for a little while. Oh, Abby's so let it die already. Yeah, I really, I didn't mean to get all the way over here, but I am. Uh, If you don't want to just let it die, then you got to take the romance out of the show because he can't just respect her because he has some sort of romantic feelings for her. That's not progressing any amount of feminism or equality. That's only respecting somebody because you care about them. Yeah, I would be more interested in a retry with her son falling in love with one of the children. Yeah, I'd be okay with that. And that, yeah, and that cultural exchange and like, you know, they're kind of under the power. So the power dynamics aren't as insane. And we could see that naturally develop and we could see him learn about her or him. Not putting any any label on the sun sexuality here, but 
I would be, if we're going to take it out, I think that's where it has to be because I'm not sure that people would watch this show without the romance element. Not that every show needs it, but this show doesn't have that interesting of a plot. Teacher comes, teacher leaves is the plot of the show. Teacher comes, teacher almost leaves, teacher comes back, teacher almost leaves, that's king true. dies. King dies and, you know, some Madam Butterfly, some Romeo and Juliet going on there. That's what my bubby, shout out, told me today. I think if you have to have a romance, you got to make the romance between Anna and Lady Tang. I think that is where the cross <laughs> I'm so with you, but you know that can't happen. Not that it can't happen. Everything can happen and it should. But ain't no one going to revamp the king and I like that. I'm going to do it. Oh my God. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm conflicted. <laughs> I don't know if I should let it die because it's bad or revive it just to prove you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me to my let's talk about polygamy bullet point. This week on let's talk about polygamy. <laughs> Everyone take a collective sigh. <sighs> um... It's just never fully addressed and it's never discussed. It is discussed because he he thinks like biologically women are meant to be faithful and men are not. That makes sense. Which, yeah, yeah totally. I completely agree. I'm just going to go on the record and say that like men having multiple wives is just more respectful of their masculinity, you know? Clearly. We have to tame them. They weren't meant for this earth. No, no, no. I was me and the kitchen. Oh, my God. We're old friends. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it's addressed between them and it's discussed like it's i don't know like it's a cultural misunderstanding but again because she's so but what about romance if if we're if we're like polygamy is in certain cultures and is very important in certain cultures and i'm not here to dig on that because monogamy is a westernized concept maybe not a westernized concept but a concept period a social construct but it's funky and it's yet again used to be like, look at him. He has multiple wives. He's a savage. Yeah. It doesn't ever explain his like, I mean, there's just nothing done to educate the audience about why he is a valid character also. Yeah. Honestly, we spend so much time showing what's different and what's wrong with him and how fiercely he defends what's quote unquote wrong. Um, and it gives no room for growth or understanding. It give we never see him be good with multiple wives, you know? Like we never see like him being kind to them or like any kind of interaction or like proof of love. Yeah. That would have been really nice to see that like he loves multiple people. Another note that Kelly earned this Tony yet again in my mind. So we are getting to something that I know Abby's going to want to talk about. But the first thing I wrote, all your people are toads, the bowing like toads. And it I don't like it. And we'll no. get to it again because the ending is the resolution. That they're not going to bow anymore because it makes them seem like toads, which is just such an ugly thing to say about a cultural practice. Um, and the answer is not like. Like the he's the new king, and the first thing he's going to do is we're not going to bow anymore because this Western woman told me like that's you know it's disrespectful to us. Yeah, it's just like he's a king, man. You're going to do something to show respect to the king in any culture. In a right now, I dress a certain way to go like see my senator. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, and like <sighs> back in my old days, a week ago when I thought we could retry. Mm -hmm. 
when I would live in that world. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a tired vet right now talking. <laughs> like back when I was younger and happier and free. Um, I thought the ending would have been a perfect way to tie in. Like the retry is focusing on the prince and his arc mm-hmm. in this story instead. I thought that was really beautiful. I'm kind of sad you've abandoned it. I mean, here, 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 here it was in its glory, everyone. I know you're on the edge of your seats. Um, <laughs> I just thought if we wanted to do, if if you really needed to retry this show again, focus on the prince's arc and include him in some scenes that he isn't currently in. No dialogue. He's just watching and really humanize the king, the king's um, struggle with what to do, because at the time, at, in 1860-something-ish that this show takes place in? Yeah, I just have early 1860s. JK, I thought I could give you a year. It takes place over the course of a year, so it changes. Um, this, this king really did struggle with, like, should I open my borders up to the West and modernize? And that is an interesting story, too, and a story we don't... We don't see that, you know, we see about like the lineage of royalty a lot, but we don't see the process of overtaking very often and we don't show the vulnerabilities of that process. I feel like that could be a big way to show empathy and a big way to show cultural exchange because he is trying to be different and maybe not different because of like the Western imposition, but different because him and his father aren't the same leaders. And it's yeah. And it's scary because like he's taking over rulership in a time that other major political powers around him were inviting the West to them. Like everybody's a response to the West was different. And like, there wasn't a clear cut answer or decision. Like that is a huge thing to take on in leadership. I can only imagine. I can't even decide what to wear every day. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And again, more exchange between the young prince and Anna's son. Yeah, because they had they had a funny little relationship they there had, at the very yeah. end. And that song was good. Um, right, they sing together to make that up. Yeah, I make and up they they did not fight the way their parents did. They were much. They were quick to be like, "I'm sorry this happened," and "I'm sorry that happened." They were quick to like resolve. Yeah, that has potential for us to focus on different characters in this show in order to revamp it. That brings us to Buddhist Prayer Act 1 finale, which Abby has a lot of dramaturgy dump and anger to discuss. It's bad. It's so bad. It's also why the official show ruling should... is bad. It's bad. Anybody who's wondering, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Um, which brings us to our official and first, that's some Broadway bullshit. Um, continue. I'll say it again once you explain. This do be some Broadway bullshit. Um the Buddhist religion is not a monotheistic religion. It, the specific version, not version, subsect, I'm not sure if that uh, word is applicable here. Peanut butter, we on my verbiage, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of peanut butters on this first episode, folks. Um, it the is Theravada Buddhism, and it was specifically brought about by King Mongkut because he spent- Say that name one more time. Theravada. Thank you, Abby. Um- it was specifically brought by the king that is in The King and I um, because he had spent time be in a Montessori pr- prior to his uh, reign. And King Monkut. It does not focus on Buddha as a god-like figure. It just focuses on Buddha as the first 
person who discovered this like line of thought for a lack of better words and for a very, very succinct version. And in the end of act one, uh, and in a puzzlement, he says, if my Lord in heaven, Buddha show the way specifically, Ooh, if my Lord in heaven ate some Protestant. Yeah. And that implies that Buddha is a Lord in heaven, which none of that is accurate to the religious beliefs of Buddhism. Buddhism is about yourself, your personal journey on your way to Nirvana again for a very like brief, succinct version. Um, so I think, I mean, that's another reason I think the show has to die, but I think if you have to retry it, you have to do something to fix that. You can't just let people think that Buddhism is a monotheistic religion. Not every religion just looks like the general American populace's religion. Yeah, and what's the line in the song? Like, if my Buddha show the way, I shall live another day. I, yeah, it it's not, it's just not like that. Buddha is not Jesus at the end of the day. Um, and we shouldn't make Buddha Jesus. And we don't need him to be Jesus for us to understand that they're Buddhist in the show. Yeah, and also it implies that their culture looks more like a Western culture. Like, if my Lord in heaven shows the way, I shall live another day. The desire to live and this like weird fear of death comes with the monotheistic Protestant mm. God. You got to believe in hell to be afraid of death. That's not a true statement. You could just be afraid of dying. But <laughs> in this world, you got <laughs> somebody peanut butters us. And they're like, I'm atheist and still afraid of dying. <laughs> they're like, I'm very afraid of dying. And I know there's no hell. I apologize if that's you. Seek some treatment. Love yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's OK. I, too, am afraid of dying. Um, Yeah. Kind of ugly folks and lazy. Above all, lazy. Easy and lazy. It like it got to 2015 and there was another revival. No one changed this. And nobody changed it. Or Dude, it should have been changed in the 1996 revival. Nope. There was no... Nobody acknowledged it at all. At, at all. We still don't. I didn't even find a lot of articles come up about this. I was like, really? Because that's just, that's just like blatantly wrong. Fully bullshit. Yeah. Before we go to act two, I had another it's pretty moment with um something wonderful. I mean, Lady Tang. Lady Tang. Ruthie, if you're out there, if you're listening, uh. you have the voice of an angel. So clear, so resonant. Could clean all the dishes <laughs> in my cupboard. And it looks effortless. It does. Dude, that's one of the first things I... I have a non-theater boyfriend. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> and we were watching, we were watching Hamilton and we, and I was like, oh, she's so still when she produces that sound. And it's so powerful. And he was like, I would never notice that in something. But the stillness, man, the ease of which you're, you're putting this out is important. No, she looks like she could like lift a car while she does that. And, th and that's what makes it feel truthful too. Like a lot of the like, layperson's critique of musicals is like people don't just sing in real life but like that's why that's why the ease and the acting is important and also to those people like have an imagination calm down let people sing. really those people need to find joy in whatever way in their lives apparently it's not musicals because they're not realistic but i hope you find joy somewhere else maybe in action movies that also aren't realistic Ooh. so brings us to act two which introduced, I can't believe I haven't asked this in the beginning. Are Rodgers and Hammerstein woke? Oof. Uh, I wanted to think yes so badly. Yeah. 
you do not know merch coming at you soon where rogers and hammerstein woke but um i wanted so badly to say yes and western people funny makes me think they are western people funny song that opens act two is there in on the joke i had the lyrics pulled up for that because there was something really good let me find them do 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 they think they civilize us whenever they advise us to learn to make the same mistake that they are making too. I see that, but so they're there. That's the bit they're in on it. That's how they close the song too. That's the last line. Yeah, but they think they civilize us whenever they advise us to learn to make the same mistake that they are making too. So I don't understand how, if he gets it, he wrote a whole musical that umps this up, which makes me kind of think he was woke. And I want to give that to them. Hammerstein might have personally been woke, like as a human for himself in 1952. But I don't think he was uh, somebody who put his money where his mouth was as frequently as he should have. Mm. Do you think there were opportunities to do that, though, in the 1950s? Because unfortunately, this is where my apologist comes out. Because while it's not okay to commit atrocious acts just because it was an earlier time, it wasn't like we were, like, in 1952, I bet, like... I just think that... I think the idea of, like... I think that that thinking is, like, a little dangerous. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is. But... I only mean to point out that, like, there weren't that many opportunities for true representation at the time. And he should have made them. And that's what I'm saying. Like, he was in a place where he was creating and people wanted to listen to what he made. And that, that Mm. is a privilege. That's true, Abby. That's very, very true. To have people who listen to you is a privilege and and is something that, like, you shouldn't be latent with, per se. Like, you shouldn't, you should use it as a tool to, like, further equity. Yeah. That's a good point. I could listen to maybe, maybe, no, actually I can't. I was going to say I could listen to an argument that they thought up the King and I for, to try and further equity for Asian American casting, but with the frequency of yellow face prior to 2015, that's just unfortunately also not true. No, it's not. It's not. Yeah. They might've been interested in telling stories about these people, but they weren't interested in like actually getting to know these people or using them, which is a classic case of, and it's going around really basically right now. So forgive me. I'm about to be an Instagram social justice warrior, but not about us without, with not about us without us. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Or if it's if it's about us without us, it is not for us. And since it's not the us in this case, not about them without them. Yeah, for sure. I agree. And I think that was really important here. Um, Get so sentimental for the Oriental. Great rhyme has to go. Has to go. Have to cut it. <laughs> has to go. Interesting rhyme. <laughs> and a true statement. That white people were really sentimental over Asian culture, even though they didn't really have ties to it. And sometimes it's awe. Like, sometimes they're calling things amazing or, like, how could they make that? But they're still othering them so much in describing Yeah. And that's, like, part of the harm of that word, too, is the othering, but also incorrectly othering and just, like, assuming all Eastern is similar to all other Eastern when it's not. Yeah. Part of the problem with this show... It's true. I loved it the first time. I loved it the second time. Hello, young lovers. I uh, what else? 
So when she's doing the circle skirt in Western People Funny and the king goes, and she's like, it's for safety. And the king goes, Western men are this aggressive. <laughs> Again, they're kind of in on the joke. And that's what's more painful, honestly, is that they're in on the joke and they could potentially be aware of this and they still played into it and made their money. Yeah, they're just like halfway there. And I think they think that they did good. Well, folks, a small, not a dramaturgy dump, but almost. After attending a charity screening of the movie, Hammerstein wrote to Rogers, quote, I am convinced this is our best work. I have a kind of humble feeling not knowing how we did it. It has more wisdom as well as heart than any other musical play by anybody. It will remain modern long past any of our other plays. I mean, unfortunately, he is right. It remained modern, but it shouldn't have. It did. Yeah, I agree. And I. Wisdom as well as heart, though, like he really. He thought there was wisdom to gain from this and the wisdom to gain from this is kind of westernization. I think he I think they're just so proud of themselves for not telling women that they're bad or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, that's true. That's true. The wisdom is in Asian culture. The wisdom is female empowerment, per se, in their version, which also brings me to another quote from an NPR article. It says the director of the 2015 revival whose name was Bartlett. Bartlett Share. Yeah. <laughs> Bartlett. Bartlett. <laughs> uh, Bartlett Share. Um, he said he says the big takeaway from the show is the power of women in the battle between tradition and change. And I don't believe I got that message at all from this show. <laughs> I did get that message, but you know what that message translates into is the uh, responsibility of women to mandate that they be treated like human beings. Mm, and that and that it's it's not oppression, it's tradition. Ooh. That's some wisdom right there. Let's say it again, folks, with some snaps. It's not oppression. Not oppression. It's tradition. Tradition. And I say that facetiously because it's fake as F. I said F, folks. I didn't curse. Ooh. Um, Quirky. Oh. Different. Teacher mode. Doesn't curse. <laughs> mm. Um, I didn't get that vision at all. And I don't know that that should be a vision for a 2015 revival. Because... I, I think I got that vision, honestly, because mm. Lady Tang was so dedicated to tradition and um, Anna was so dedicated to change. And the two of them seemed to be more in charge than the king was. Yeah. That's a lot of credit that you're giving the director, Abby, and I'm proud of you for that. Thank you. I don't typically do that. I just disagree. <laughs> I didn't get it. <laughs> I didn't get it. I didn't see it. I don't think that's, <laughs> I don't, I like find, finding unifying themes for this. And that wasn't it for me. And I think I wrote the one that I wanted. So the takeaway that I got is similar, but not relating to women. That was, I supposed to take away that deviation from tradition in the name of progression slash exchange. The takeaway I got from this show was, um, westernization of a culture in a story and appropriation is the only way to effectively make people feminists. <laughs> Abby is coming for us. Let's go through the rest of the songs in act two, but Abby is coming. I wrote, I want to be little Topsy when I grow up. God so damn, she isn't so cute. Oh, and the hair flips. So cute. <laughs> and the way she dances. I want to be little Topsy. 
Um, gonna shout out the lighting designer, whose name is Donald Holder. Donald. Donald. It was grand. It was grand. I want to shout out the scenic designer, Michael. Michael Jurgen, if you're out there, uh, you're a beautiful man. Yeah, Michael Jurgen, you did some good work. Those columns, when they glided across the stage, they kind of stole my heart a little bit. Oh, I love a glide. A glissando, if you will. Is that what it's called when you glide <laughs> musically? I think it is. I think I'm right. And you know glissando? what? I think I will. I I think I will. Um, the light purple on Kelly in that gown is everything. Stunning. Oh my god, Michael is from Dallas. This is so not important, <gasps> but I was like, Michael. Oh my gosh, where'd he go to high school? <laughs> he went to Sunset High School. I know exactly where he's an Oak Cliff boy. He's cool. Uh yeah, the light purple is everything. Lighting design. Oh, they really didn't need to show him beating Tupton like that. The savagery of beating women. It really like we just got into a place in the show where I felt like I could take a breath. We'd gotten to Western people funny. We'd gotten to hello, young lovers. I have a dream. I don't know. That's the only moment that he they accurately represent what that relationship is. Because up until that point, there you're like, whatever. They just vibe in. Also, just like the production team was great and they did a stunning job. However, that's not a single person of color on that team. Yeah. Yeah. We do need to shout that out. That's very important. If you're gonna do a show about a specific culture, you need a member from that culture that understands it intimately so that the portrayal is accurate. It's not their responsibility necessarily to call you on all your shit, but not having a single member there shows shows how the book doesn't care about Mm. representing the Siamese people correctly and how... Nobody on the team took the time to be like, hey, this show doesn't do yeah, that. And it's not 1952. It was 2015 when this happened. And you can absolutely get an artistic team of color and you can absolutely get a Thai artistic team. We keep acting like like people of color in the theater are are rarities, but it's because we force them to be rarities because we don't give them a platform. It's not because they don't exist and we should stop pretending that way. Yeah. And I just think that theater people need to think about um, what they're teaching younger storytellers at every given moment. Like, I think with every time we put together a new team, just like how we need to constantly be checking like our own actions and how they affect the world. We need to think about how each new team informs the theater community as a team and what you're teaching, like storytellers coming up because this show teaches me that like I, as a white woman can just kind of do whatever I want when it comes to making things pretty. And on that note though, shall we dance was so pretty, (laughs) but I hated it. Really? Because, this is uh, this is what I said last week when me and Cassidy tried this episode first. Uh, Cassidy, could you be in love with a man who was a rapist? Abby, I totally get that. And I understand the severity of that. And I understand that you're shoving it in my face. Unlike this musical that tries to hide it away. <laughs> and you keep bringing it back up to remind me. And I appreciate it because it's necessary. Especially post beating. It is, is post beating. 
or almost beat her. But so shall we dance? No, I don't dance with rapists. That's what she should have said. Shall we dance? No, I don't perpetuate rape culture. Yeah, sorry. I don't dance with misogynists. I will say the best acting moment in the show is the almost kiss. And I feel very conflicted about that because I don't dance with misogynists. But God, Ken and Kara in that moment stole they my did. heart Honestly, for five they seconds. Did. And, that's, and that's the point of shall we dance? I think like it's light. It's easy. It, I, I just like it. And I've been humming it all day, folks. So please cut me a break. I'm not trying to be a rape apologist in any way. But it was nice to watch and not think too hard about. Which I think is exactly what the point of the show was. I agree. Don't think too hard. Not to think too hard, but you're supposed to walk out of that show being like, yeah, I'm a feminist. Don't even have to think about it. And we're not at a place that wants, like, historically, that means that story anymore. We've already done the, like, oh, I'm a feminist ideologically. Our our generation's push is to get people to put actions behind their beliefs. And this show doesn't necessarily do that. Yeah, I thought the heart attack was weak. I also wrote a little musical dramaturgy. He didn't really do any research on music of Siam, music of Thailand. Um, He just did a lot of open fifth chords sprinkled throughout the show instead of doing research and then just created dissonance in moments. And it's very like, how do we make it sound Asian? Yeah, because it just the dissonance sounds different, but it's still in a major key. So it's uh, something that the Western ear is used to uh, uh associating with like the quote-unquote other yeah yeah that's a really good point we are used to all of our chords resolving we are well that's another difference is in uh thai music there's seven tones instead of eight octaves pop off dramaturgy abby wow thank you thank you um do we want to talk about how the king and i is banned in thailand (laughs) oh i was i was hoping we would talk about that i think that is a huge reason as to why I am so solid. I was hoping by the end of this episode, I'd go back to retry. I really wanted to. I, yeah. Yeah. Y'all. I think you've convinced me a little bit. We'll, we'll resolve in a moment. So I wanted to take this time to shout out my dear and lovely friend, Daniel Roberts, who made it to the final round of the casting of the tour of the King and I. Yeah, so I was talking to Daniel and getting some of his thoughts about this process. And what he left me with was like, I'd explained to him the concept of this show. And he was like, right off the bat, it should die. White Savior Show. And then he sent me, which resonated with me really, really strongly. He says, I love the show because it's one of the few I have to love. And then he said, but it's gross. Um, And yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that reinforces... Uh, my thinking and that we should just take our artistic time and our artistic resources and try and develop other shows that can be loved that don't have to be loved on contingencies that can just be loved yeah i agree man and i and i think about works that accurately represent a culture and are in the canon like in the impact that that stands to have in the educational impact that that stands to have i agree i just think that i feel like the king and i just did not the book, the writing of it itself did not take enough care in creating 
empathetic full-fledged characters it just relied on stereotypes in my yeah, opinion yeah and as a result you lose the universality like i think i don't think there has to be a universal aspect to every time we discuss other cultures but i felt like this story should have had more universality attached to it and didn't because they dug their heels so hard into asian stereotypes yeah and i think the way that we used to judge as a society universality was the was by the measure of like how well the white American man Mm -hmm. could relate to the story. And I think that as storytellers in our society, we're shifting towards creating universality by creating specificity of characters that are empathetic and honest and culturally and just accurately represented all the way around in my, and I think that's like the biggest, my biggest problem with the King and I is that that's not preserved at every step. If you're ever going to create a culture that's not fictional, and portray it by being an amalgamation of similar cultures around it, you messed up. Yeah. And a little lazy, in my opinion. And a big time lazy, man. It's just so easy to do research. I understand the internet wasn't a thing back then, but like, boy, they had money. Go travel. Go get your world book encyclopedia out. Go interview someone. Yeah. Like, pick up a book and then find somebody to talk to about that book, you know? (sighs) yeah yeah and that's my piece on that but i i yeah i and this and this like logic is how i just kept walking towards die when i was thinking about it again i agree with you and the more time i've had to sit with it the more i agree with you unfortunately and it it does pain me because these these songs are such cultural staple i don't want to say a cultural staple but they're what do you so what's the word they're iconic Uh, there we go there we go. They're iconic songs and they they hold a certain value of just like they were playing on the radio and they were being hum and they were being sang. And it's a shame that there is no separation from that because in musical theater, you can't just be like, that's a bop because that bop was meant to progress a certain storyline along. And if that storyline is messed up, then the song's messed up because it was a storytelling device. So like the best it can be is pretty. And pretty is just not enough anymore. I agree. I agree. I am I am officially declaring myself as even though it's so pretty and even though I enjoy the tunes and hopefully we'll hear a show choir perform them instead next. Um, I, I think it has to die because it would just be so much work to revamp it. And would that work really be worth it? I don't think so. Yeah. I really... And that's unfortunate because a lot of people grew up with this show. And that's part of the problem is when you grow up with this representation of Thai culture, Siamese culture, Asian culture in general, because it's such a generalization, you you grow to unconsciously perpetuate these stereotypes, whether you mean to or not, because it's all that's been given to you. Yeah. And why why do that? And it pains me because I don't I don't want to see it die. Honestly, this podcast, I'm really anti Golden Age most times. And I try to find the beauty in it. I find the beauty in Golden Age when I see new work and see how Golden Age set it up or tied into it or allowed for it to come into existence. Um, but I think this can go. Mm-hmm. And I it's a hard parting. I would love a retry. I really would. But it would just be way too much work. 
So I'll see it in the concert version, in which case we will only sing. I will list my favorites right now. In the concert version of the show that I will be producing, we will sing Whistle a Happy Tune. <laughs> we will sing Hello, Young Lovers. We will certainly not sing a puzzlement. We will sing We Kiss in the Shadow four times on a loop. Ugh. Abby. <laughs> <laughs> and we will sing um, Something Wonderful, closed by Western People Funny. Those are my five song choices of the concert version of the show. I, I approve of your concert version of the show. I do. Thank you. All righty. And next, next week, we're going to be watching Little Shop of Horrors. You can watch whichever version you're comfortable with. But we're going to watch a boot. Shh, don't tell. Abby, why are we watching a bootleg? And why do we feel okay doing this in this day and age? Because Broadway should be more accessible. Less barrier to entry for Broadway, folks. Woo! So we will be watching the Pasadena Playhouse version with my lovely girl, MJ Rodriguez. Um, awesome. Thank you guys so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Please feel free to peanut butter us about anything. Truly, just like talk about your day if you'd like. Uh, we just want to take a quick moment to thank all of our sweethearts of the pod. First up, we have Liza Kay. She made our theme and intro music. She's a queen. She's a star. Next up, we have Lily Guo. Uh, you can follow her on Barks and Boo, no space, no caps, on Instagram. Uh, she did our logo art and it looks spectacular. And then Nick Soy, my king, helping me out with audio throughout the week, trying to figure out how to edit, trying to figure out how to do things. Uh, and last but certainly not least, we have Sarah Lassert, our director of marketing. And Cassidy, what does she do for us? Oh my gosh, Sarah makes us look pretty all across the board. And if you want to see how pretty she's made us look or follow Ooh. our social media handles Ooh. or go to our website, you can Ooh. get us on Instagram at Broadway Bullshit Pod, no spaces, Twitter at Broadway BS Pod. You can like us on Facebook at Broadway Bullshit Pod again. And of course, at our website, which Sarah has made look so fabulous, BroadwayBullshitPod.com. Again, that's BroadwayBullshitPod.com. Please like us, subscribe to us, leave us a review. Let us know what you thought. We love doing this so we hope y'all love listening to it Woo! amazing closing episode one we have the director of marketing sarah lassert singing getting to know you sarah take it away i'm getting to know about you getting to like you getting to hope you like me Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely, you are precisely my cup of tea.